this is Jordan Beal. Welcome to the Rock of Grace podcast from our Kinsman campus. We are passionate about leading people to follow Jesus together, and we're so glad that you're opening the Word of God with us today. I pray God speaks to your heart. I just want to uh, preface this with just a reminder that today's conversation uh, deals with sensitive topics, so if you do have children who are fifth grade or under, you may want them to uh, participate in our kids' ministry if they're not already there. And... Uh, See, I believe as parents, as adults, as spiritual parents, you are the primary spiritual caregiver for your household, for your children. You know, and I think sometimes across our society, we come across where that place is church. Church is the first place that we hear about these things. But the truth is that as parents... As a parent myself, my son's third birthday is today, which I can't believe. But as a parent, I am the spiritual primary person in my house to see that my children know who Jesus is. And church continues to build on that as the body, as we gather. And this is why we have topics to speak on, like what we will talk about today. Because as a church, we want to equip you, the primary spiritual caregivers of your household, with how to have healthy conversations about the topics that we are seeing scattered throughout culture today. Because ultimately, we seek to lead people to follow Jesus together. And it is our responsibility as pastors. I know Pastor Jordan so desperately wanted to be here this morning, and he sends his love. Because as pastors, we truly believe that part of our calling and responsibility to our congregation is to equip you for these conversations. And I can't imagine a better second place, second to your dinner tables, your living rooms, your family rooms, your backyard. I can't think of a better second option, a second place for us to have these conversations as we grow and understand who Jesus is. And we have taken careful time as a team to make sure that the words today that we share are not my opinions, they're not Pastor Jordan's opinions, but they are directly out of the word of the Lord. And if you disagree with something, I want to challenge you to say, Lord, speak to me. Because I'm not sharing an opinion here. I'm sharing what Scripture says. I say, God, soften my heart. Let us find freedom. Let us find who you are. So what we discuss again, as as I said, is covered in prayer. And it's surrounded by scripture as our staff has continued to cover this time and time again. We pray regularly as a team. And we can confidently say that this is God's word. So I want to start off with an illustration, if I will, or if you will. This is a mirror. Has everybody seen a mirror before? Yeah? Some of you guys, has anybody never seen a mirror before? I don't know how you got here. Your car probably has a bunch of them. So we've got a mirror, right? And we have this incredible thing called a uh, morning routine. Did everybody get up this morning? Yeah, you all woke up. If you're here, some of you might have pulled an all-nighter. I don't know. Your morning routine would have been yesterday then. The idea is you have a morning routine. And chances are, if I were to poll everybody in this room about what your morning routine is, there might be a lot of similarities. 
So let's just uh, take a quick poll. Who in this room brushes your teeth as part of your morning routine? Don't look around, guys. I see who's not raising their hand. I see it. I'll give them a breath mint later. So you get up. So like, for me, I am a 6 a.m. alarm person. I wake up at 6 a.m., partially because as a parent, you know, that's one of your few times that you could probably get up and uh, have a kid free and not be super exhausted. It's a different type of exhausted because you can have your cup of coffee in the morning, right? So I get up at 6 o'clock, and I do the things that I need to around the house. Some days it varies. But then I get to the point of my routine that is more systematic than others, right? I have to get ready to come into the office. I have to get ready to look presentable for the day, you know, so other people don't look at me and, like, scoff away and be like, this dude smells, or what's this prickly thing popping out the side of this man's head? Um, I do have to clean this regularly. So I get in. I get in the bathroom, I check my weight, see how I'm doing. I'm down 30 pounds, by the way, this year, so that's a great improvement. Yeah, it's incredible, right? And like, we have part of our routine with all of that. So I brush my teeth, get ready to take a shower. But at some point, for all of us, this is a defining moment for our day. And you're going to be like, bro, I'm just getting dressed. This doesn't define anything. But I promise you, there's a definition that happens. Because how many of you guys look in the mirror every morning? That's me. I look in the mirror, right? And some of you, I'm going to have this uh, visualization. For those of you on the side, we're going to try to have it on the screens here. But for some of you, you look at yourself and say, well, that's uh, less dark than I was hoping. So we're going to go with the red and the, the lights. We're going to say, I look good. Just look at yourself and be like, mm, there it is. I look good. Look at that suave haircut. I haven't had a haircut in years, guys. <laughs> Say, I look good. You look at yourself, maybe you smile. You might say something positive. You might, is anyone in this room like morning affirmation people? Like you look in the mirror and say, I am bold, I am brave, I am woman. You might affirm yourself. I don't say I am woman. <laughs> Although we'll talk about that today. So we have all of these things that we continue to say about yourself. And you look at yourself and say, how do I continue to go? And this is where people begin to deviate. I don't know how well that's going to work, but we can kind of see it on the screen. And this is where people's days begin to deviate. Because if I'm speaking life into myself, and I'm keeping it high just so that way everybody can kind of see it. But this is where it deviates. Because you can either speak life into yourself. Because if you're looking in the mirror and saying, hey, you know, I look good today. Look at your teeth. They look great. My weight is exactly where I want it to be. Or whatever you say in the mirror, you can speak life in. And you're starting your day off by saying positive things about yourself. But then, I'm slipping somehow, Ryan. I apologize. We'll give it a good college try here. It's the sweaty bald head. How? I'm, I'm pulling a Pastor Andrew here. I'm going to switch to the handheld. <laughs> hey, guys. Man, oh, that entire thing fell off. Sorry, Ryan. I'll try not to. So you start your day off by speaking positive things into your life, right? And it sets the tone for your day. 
But some of you are looking at even just the three words of, of good, of smiling, of affirming. And you're saying, Pastor Dave, that is not me. That wasn't me this morning. That wasn't me this week. That hasn't been me for years. And you might say things to yourself. Like, man, am I ugly. My teeth are too yellow. There we go. I'm too fat. I'm bald. To me, that's a positive. But you might look at it and say, I'm losing my hair. And you continue to speak these negative things into your life. And you start your day off that way. I've been there. Maybe you have. We begin to speak these things. Because, you know, a mirror has a lot of purposes, but one of the purposes is that you can see your reflection and get ready for the day. But what does it do to our souls and our minds if when we're getting ready for the day that we are speaking lies of the enemy to ourselves? When we speak so negatively to ourselves, what does that do for how I am starting my day? And honestly, as you're sitting there thinking, what would I be writing in the mirror? Or what did I write in my mirror this morning? Does it sometimes feel like it's easier to write the negatives than it does the positives? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, here's the thing is, a positive feels great. But man, sometimes I feel like that negative that we give ourselves just outweighs, we can have one negative and outweighs seven positives. Doesn't it feel that way? How it just can destroy us. And often, we let these things eat away at us. Feeling like we are being hit with the hammer that we call life. And my reality begins to shatter and distort. That didn't work. I taped it too well. Don't worry, I taped it so it won't fall apart. Don't step right there. Our reality begins to distort. If we could show that on the screen real quick. This is what the negative words that we speak does to us. It shatters our reality, and it tells us the thing that God made perfect and whole is shattered and broken. And we distort the lies with the lies of the enemy, the truth that God wants us to see is that he made you whole and that he made you perfect. And he made you now and with a purpose. But instead, I allow my words to be the enemy's words and speak death over my life instead of life and purpose that Jesus has. And that sets the framework for how we start our days. Church, I believe that Jesus is not asking us to continue to hit our reflection over and over again. This morning, we're hitting some sensitive topics, if you haven't figured this one out. And I believe God is going to truly set some people free this morning 
but also empower you as the body of Christ to have that same life-giving, freedom-providing conversations wherever you go. Because now when I speak hate and death into my life, every time I look at my reflection, I see a shattered image of what should be beautiful. But all I see is brokenness. You might be there right now. You might have been there at some point in your life where when you look in the mirror, all you see is brokenness. You know, Will touched on this last week where when we see what Jesus sees, you know what Jesus sees when he looks at you? It's perfection. It's beauty. It's wholeness. Don't let the lies of the enemy shatter your perspective of who God has made you to be. But then we let God's truth into our lives and allow it to transform and renew our thoughts, not just about the world around us, not just our faith, but the way we view ourselves as children of God. And we're going to continue to expand on that next week as we close out this series. But I want to pick up on last week where we recognize what our faith looks like. And when we do that, we create an ability to speak the things of God into our life, into our lives. And that ability increases the more we get to know him, the more we grow in our faith. That threefold faith we talked about of a covenantal faith, an epistemological faith, and an eschatological faith from last week. And if you haven't caught up on that, check that out last week. It was an incredible message from Will. But see, as we grow in our faith, so does our ability to speak the things that are of Jesus into our lives because we become more and more familiar with him. When we become more familiar with his word, we become more familiar with him. So speak God's truth to yourself. This is how we start. This is how we need to start our days, folks. Even on days when it's hard, the days when you want to look at yourself in the mirror and destroy yourself with your thoughts and your words, let me challenge you. Put a post-it note. Write something. Husbands, leave a note for your wife on the mirror. Dry erase board. I've got $5. Leave her an encouraging note. Wives, do the same thing for your husbands. Encourage them. Allow them to see what Jesus sees. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. I have it up here on the screen. You can turn to it in your Bibles or your Bible apps. It says this. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles were the people who were not the Jewish people. In the futility of their thoughts, they are darkened in the understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They become callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and impurity of truth. 
Jesus is calling us to a life better than we permit ourselves to live sometimes. Have you ever struggled to believe that God can make you new? Like, God, yeah, cool, God can make you new, but have you seen me? Is God going to make me new? Have you ever actually struggled with that? I'm willing to bet that a lot of people in this room have struggled with God. How can you make me new? Like, it's cool you did that for this person, but how can you make me new? My life's a mess. I'm a mess. I'm completely shattered. But God's saying, wow, this is what you see. I see something different. Because when you speak truth, God's truth into your life, you begin to reflect into your life who he is. And if I were to hold this mirror up and call any one of you up right now and show you your reflection, and you might be looking at yourself right now, I'm showing you what Jesus sees. Jesus sees you in the perfection that he made you in. His child that he has called you to be. Not shattered, but a life full of potential and decisions to follow him and lead others to see clearly. Not shattered, not distorted, but clearly. See, why can we come to God and ask him to heal me of this, rid me of that, purify my mind, yet walk away and give in to the same thought I just asked God to rid me of? Now, I'm not asking for a call of hands, but you ever pray for something and feel like God's released you of something, and then you go home and you do the exact same thing that you just felt God released you of? <sighs> Many youth group days, too. God bless our youth pastors. But man, how many times can we come to God and say, God, I believe you for this, but then we just throw it back in his face and be like, yeah, I believed you then, but I'm just going home doing the exact same thing I did before. I'm going to give in to the same temptation I said, God, I want to be free of, and I just did it again. But don't worry, God, I'll pray about it again next week. That next altar call is going to be banging so good. Whew. Isaiah 55, 8. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. Because we want to say, God, rid me of this thought. But here's the thing. I don't think Jesus is going to say, I'm taking away your thoughts. Because when he takes away your thoughts, he's taking away the freedom he has given you. Instead, he teaches us and guides us to transform and renew our minds to reflect him. And it's part of the transformation and the sanctification, which means growing in our relationship with him every day. Because the Lord gave you free will. And if the Lord takes away your free will, are you free? It's not a trick question. The answer is no. He gave you the choice to follow him, and he gave you the choice to say no to him. That's love. See, we must learn to conform our thoughts to reflect him. And for some of you, you might say that's easy. But for others, you might say, Pastor Dave, I've been trying. I have been trying. I promise you, I've been trying and it's not working. And we encourage you to continue to seek these things. 
Continue to seek his renewal. Continue to seek his transformation by spending time with him. Spending time with Jesus. So what do we see now in this mirror? We see a clean start. We see a perfect reflection of one who can choose to reflect God every day in word and in action and in thought. But see, we live in a society where the validity of the validity of truth seems to be questioned more and more. Well, whose truth are we listening to? Well, that's your truth. That's not mine. You ever notice there's more conspiracy theories now about basically everything than I feel like there's ever been? You want to talk about a season of life culturally where I feel like all we're doing is questioning the validity of truth? You want to get some people riled up, let's talk about government conspiracy theories. We're not going to do that from the stage. By the way, I'm, I don't have those, but somebody else in this room might. But we see this as Jesus prays over his disciples. And you'll see the framework that we're laying this morning. John 17, verses 14 through 19 says, and he's pr- this is about Jesus' disciples, saying, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's Jesus. Jesus says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Not only is Jesus saying that the world will reject the ways of the Lord, but also those who live and walk in his word. As a Christian, have you ever felt rejected by the world? I have. I'm seeing a lot of heads nod saying, yeah, there's people that sometimes don't get me, don't get it. Accuse me of things that I'm not. But see, Jesus also declares that his word is truth. See, the gospel's truth is not the world's perspective of truth, is it? I don't think it takes long for us to open up the Bible and then turn on the news and find confliction. It's not hard. The gospel is not the world's perspective of truth but we know it to be true as we seek to lead the world to following him. See, we're told that you must find who you are and you have to express who you are. You might have heard any variation of that statement, right? Be true to yourself. Well, that's just who you are. I'm born this way. The list can keep going on, right? So we're told this. We have to express who we are, who I was born as. But you know what? We were born as and into a world of sinners. So if I express myself in this way, then I will be expressing sin. That's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. To know that there's going to be parts of me that feel natural, that feel innate. That God's saying, I didn't design you with that. But I can say, God, this is, this, no, this is right. This feels right. I feel it from my fingers to my toes. This is right. But Jesus is saying, I didn't design you with that. 
I didn't speak that over your life. If we were born into a world of sin and we express the innate things that we struggle with, you know, sin is kind of part of all of our lives, then I'm expressing sin. I'm going to repeat this throughout the message for those of us who, just to bring us on the same page. Sin is anything we say or do that is against the will of God. This is the most basic, fundamental way we can explain sin. It's anything we say or do that is against the will of God. And by course, that goes with the things and the ways that he has designed us to be. And this morning, we're talking about topics that are sensitive. You know, if you you didn't see the memo or haven't been listening for the last uh, 15 minutes, we're talking about sin. But we're also going to be talking about mental health disorders. And I want to lay a few uh, pieces of framework for this, too. Like all sickness, we believe in a God who heals. And like all sin, we believe in a God with endless mercy and grace. And when one person struggles with the sickness or one person struggles with the sin, makes them no less valuable to Jesus, no less deserving of his mercy, no less deserving of his grace, no less deserving to be called a child of God. Because just because our society has criminalized some of the topics we're going to be talking about today doesn't mean that these sins are any less or any more than when I lied this morning. See, the Bible talks about how for all sin and falls short of the glory of God. Because God sees sin as sin. There's no weight, there's no tear to it. I sin, yes. I did not sin, no. It's a yes or no. So as Christians, we first need to know how to not criminalize the sins of others. You know, the scripture actually kind of talks about this with the plank and the speck in your own eyes. You could check it out in Matthew. How we're here to live, I can't speak, lift one another up in prayer, and in support. And see, one thing that I want to emphasize this morning is that temptation is not a sin. However, the action taken on temptation is. Temptation is the innate feelings within us. That urge to do that thing that I probably shouldn't do, right? Or the thing like, I just have this urge to do that. Or I feel like I should be doing this. And see, we're born into that world full of sin. Thanks, Eve. But Jesus was tempted. Yet the Bible says he lived a sinless life. Having a temptation does not mean you're sinning. Jesus showed us that very clear. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were. And we're going to finish out that verse in a little bit. But we're going to talk about my worth to myself. I know we kind of already touched on that. But there's a worth that we have to ourselves. It's the words that we say that either shatter us or let us see ourselves who Jesus has designed us to be. And there are some hot topics in this world that are going on around us when it comes to our worth, our value. And we're going to touch on these topics broadly. But if you're saying some of this is interesting to me and I really want to dive in more, one of our discipleship night classes that are taking place here uh, is going to be led by Pastor Jordan talking on sexual identity. 
And if you're a parent or someone that just wants to know more what the Bible says on this, uh, come join us. It starts on Wednesday nights. But again, let me preface this. Saying Jesus loves you, died for you, rose for you, so that you may know him and know peace. And this is true for all people who walk and breathe on this earth. So we're going to start off in a spot that most people might not think about. Because you might already have in your head this is the first thing Pastor Dave's talking about today, but it's not. It's our relationship status. Right? We talk about sexual identity and you think I'm going to go to an immediate topic. But first I want to talk about our relationship status. Because sometimes we get caught up in our identity of having to be attached to somebody. Of having to be married. Of having to be dating somebody. We all went to high school, right? We all know that feeling. Where I have to be dating somebody so consumed by the idea that I have to get married and that when I begin and become obsessed with it in a way, I compromise the things of God sometimes. Because my desire is to grow in a relationship status instead of growing my relationship with him. I mean, look, we got the woman at the well. She had five husbands, and the man she was with was not yet her husband. I'm, I'm wondering if he did. That's one of the questions I have when I get up to heaven. Like, was the sixth man the sixth husband? Matthew 5, 28 says, But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, guys, sexual sin is not just about same sex. It's about when you look at somebody with a way that God does not intend you to. That secret sin that you're doing that your spouse doesn't know about, that your parents don't know about when you're looking at pornography on the screen, on your phone, on your computer. Yeah. Jesus talks about that too. What are we doing as a body? What are we doing as followers of Jesus? If we're so easy to point at what I think is the glaring and obvious thing and forget the secret sin that many Christians struggle with. They say about 49% of people that uh, profess Christ struggle with pornography. That means about half of this room. That's a lot, isn't it? Church, we have to get this right without pointing fingers. We have to. We absolutely, positively have to. And if you need motivation to not be so consumed by the relationship status part of it, Scripture says in Matthew 22, 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We become so focused on a marriage here that we forget that we're not married in the kingdom. We need to be focused on Jesus. Luke 14 shows us what happens when we prioritize relationship status over Jesus in the parable of the large banquet, where one guest said to him who was invited, said, no, 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 I can't make it. I just got married. I mean, we've all used our spouse as an excuse to get out of something, right? <laughs> we've been there. But this guy gave it to Jesus. Like, no, no, no. Sorry. Lord, can't make it to heaven today. I got married. We cannot put our relationship status before Jesus. Now, let me clarify. If you're married and your spouse is not serving the Lord, I am not saying divorce your spouse because of that. We continue to lead them to Jesus. And you know, it's just as easy for us to mask this relationship as something that is for Jesus, too. We become so focused and say, well, you know, I'm going to lead them to the Lord. 
you know, missionary dating is, was a thing for, we heard, joked about in youth group all the time growing up, saying, I'm going to date this non-believer so that hopefully they can come to know Jesus. But if anybody's done that, you know, more times than not, that doesn't frequently happen that way. And it kind of misleads the other way. But see, we often jump to one conclusion. Remember I said we're going broad today so we can hit just the to- larger topics. But we often jump to one conclusion when this topic is even mentioned. But as you've seen, the topic is more broad than just the hot-button issues of today. But Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32 says, For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's sentence, this is key, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. I don't know about you, but I've had many friends that have grown up in the church, grown up serving Jesus, only to turn from him and celebrate and encourage other people to do the same thing and step into a life that doesn't honor Jesus. They're doing exactly what the scripture says. But I want to point out a few things that we might be tempted to misinterpret, just for some clarity from the scripture. It says, God had a design for us when it comes to our sexuality and that anything outside of this is unnatural to God's eyes. Next, when we commit our lives to sinful acts, even knowing what God's word says, God does not prevent us from making this free choice. As a result, we are permitted by God to continue growing in our corruption against him. After all, anything other than that would mean God didn't give us that free will that we talked about. Scripture is not saying that each person who deals with one of these sins is dealing with all of these sins. But rather, I really like what the ESV study Bible says about this. It says that human sin is not confined to sexual sins. And Paul here lists a whole catalog of the evils common among human beings as a result of turning from God. People do not generally sin in innocent ignorance, for they know God's decree that their evil deserves condemnation. Indeed, the evil goes further when people give approval and applaud others for their sin, probably because having others join in their sin makes them feel better about the evil course they have chosen. It's kind of like when you agree to do a diet with a friend, but then you see them eating a donut, so you eat a donut too. You're like, oh, don't worry, it's a cheat day. Misery loves company, and so does sin. See, Paul isn't saying, you know, kill these people, put them out on the streets to die. Although, you know, sometimes as American Christians, we might think that. It's easiest. But that there is an eternal punishment for living in sin, which is all throughout Scripture. And this isn't the first time it's mentioned, and it's not exclusive to the topics of today. So we continue to move on. 
Gender dysphoria, also known as gender identity disorder, is a formal diagnosis given by mental health professionals to people who experience distress because of a significant incongruence between the gender with which they personally identify and the gender with which they were born. That's the definition from Britannica Dictionary. So we move into gender identity. We talked about sexual identity. We move into the gender identity. And if there's the most hot topic item that we could talk about today, it's this, right? I feel like we can't avoid it. We can't get away from it. And it's our responsibility as a church to say, what does God's word truly say about this? See, we're not discussing how individuals get to this point. One, that could be another 24 hours of conversation because there's so many theories, and I don't know if we can find any evidence hard yet. They're still, you know, looking into all this stuff. But also, I'm no more qualified to talk about some of these mental health disorders on the, the health side of it than I am to diagnose, diagnose and treat you for hypertension. Right? That's not, that's not where I'm versed. That's not where I'm skilled. That's not what I went to school for. I went to school for determining what Scripture is saying. And that's where we're coming from this morning. But instead of hearing from me, somebody who has not struggled with this in my life, I want to share with you guys a testimony from somebody. Her name is Linda Seiler. She lives out in California. Pastor Andrew and I uh, were out at a conference, and we heard her give this testimony, and we bought her book right away because it was incredible and inspiring. And she does this topic far more service than I ever can. Now, obviously, we couldn't get her out here from California for this, this short moment of a testimony, but we've got a video from the service that uh, Pastor Andrew and I were at, and we would love to share that testimony with you. And fun fact, it's my sister introducing her. Uh, Ryan, you can throw that screen up. Her name is Dr. Linda Seiler. She is currently, yes, show her some love. She's currently a Chi Alpha missionary. She's the executive director of Restory Ministry. She has her PhD in intercultural studies from the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. And we have the honor of really leaning in to learn from and be inspired by her life and her testimony. So would you guys put your hands together and welcome to the stage Dr. Linda Seiler. Praise God. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. From my earliest memory, I wanted to be a little boy instead of a little girl. I had never heard the terms transgender or gender dysphoria. Nobody was using those terms back in my day when I was growing up. And it wasn't something from the outside where my parents said, oh, we wish you were a boy or you're the son that we never had. That was not anything from the outside. It was something internal. It was a compulsion from the inside that I felt like I wasn't complete unless I was a boy and I had male anatomy. My parents didn't know. I didn't feel like I could tell them. Our culture was totally different back then than it is today. It wasn't cool to be LGBTQ. And so I didn't tell my family. My parents just thought I was a tomboy and that a lot of girls like to be outside and climb trees and play sports instead of being inside like my older sister Nancy. 
They thought it was a phase that I would just grow out of, as most people do. Stats show us that 80 to 90% of gender non-conforming children, if you just let puberty run its course, eventually they will find security in who God created them to be and grow up as God intended, as a man or a woman. But in my case, my parents didn't know what I was feeling, and they just thought it was a phase, and eventually I would just grow in security in my womanhood. But I knew this wasn't a phase. Masculinity was my destiny, or so I thought. When I was nine years old, a friend at school pushed me into the boys' restroom, and I saw this wall of urinals. And I was like, what, what, what is that? <laughs> I didn't know there was a way the other half lived, if you know what I'm saying. And so that urinal became this picture, like an icon of that forbidden world that I desperately wanted to be a part of. And from that point forward, I began to visit men's restrooms, boys' restrooms, and pretend to use a urinal. And I looked so much like a boy that nobody batted an eye. They just walked in and out. And I thought, yes, you know who I really am, my true identity. When my hormones kicked in in later life, the urinal became a sexual fetish. The very sight of a urinal was a sexual high, and I would visit men's restrooms merely for the sexual high. It was an addiction I could not get free from for decades. Also, when I was nine years old, I heard about these things that we used to call sex change operations. Today, they call it gender confirmation surgery or gender affirmation. Note to self you cannot actually change your sex. Gender is not assigned by a doctor when you're born. It's designed by our creator who knit us together in our mother's womb. The answer to gender dysphoria is not to rearrange the skin on our bodies to match our fallen mind. The answer is to renew our mind to match the body that the creator gave us. Of course, I didn't know any of that when I was nine years old. I literally thought in my juvenile mind, I could go into the hospital one day as Linda and come out the next day as David. And when I heard that, I said, sign me up. As soon as I am old enough and I have enough money, I will change my name to David, get that sex change operation and live happily ever after. When I was in junior high, you can see in this picture, I was androgynous. I was totally uncomfortable in my body. I despised this female body that was beginning to show signs of female maturation. I was uncomfortable. I began to entertain thoughts of exiting this world because I was so uncomfortable and I hated being trapped in this body. I was intensely jealous of the boys around me whose voices were changing and they were becoming everything I desperately longed to be. And I didn't want to do anything with the world of women, with the girls around me who were experimenting with makeup and blossoming into womanhood and wanting to date boys. I rejected that world. And it was during that season that I discovered to my horror that I was exclusively attracted to the same sex. I didn't choose that, I didn't want that, but I felt helpless to change it. And so here I am in junior high and there was no one to talk to. There was no LGBTQ club, there was no safe zone, there was nobody in our culture that was affirming this. I was terrified that anybody would ever know. And so I had to figure this out on my own. And so in my own mind I thought, if I really am a man, 
trapped inside of a female body, then that just makes me a straight man, attracted to women. So all I need to do is hold on until I can get the sex change operation and my whole life will make sense. And so that was my plan as a junior hire. As I got into late junior high and I started to think through the ramifications of having a sex change in a way you don't think through when you're nine years old. And I thought, oh no, how, how am I gonna tell my family? What will my parents think? What will my sister think? What will the neighbors, what will my grandparents think? And I gotta be honest with you, I was too chicken to transition. If I grew up in today's day and age and I could get on YouTube and watch videos of people transitioning and injecting testosterone and watch mesmerized as these women were transformed to appear like men, I would have done that in a heartbeat. But you know what, it may not have turned out so well when I discovered rearranging the skin on my body did nothing to resolve the wounds in my soul. And so as I was processing this in late junior high, and I'm thinking through, what are my options here? I decided I really only had two options. Option A, run away, have the sex change, never see my family again, but at least I get to be David and live happily ever after. Option B, don't have the surgery. Get to keep my family, but at least it would, at least I keep my family, but it would, it would consign me to a life of despair and loneliness. And I remember the day as I was walking down the hall in junior high, I consciously chose option B. And I thought, you know, this is just what you have to do to survive. And so from that day forward, I decided I better do a little more effort here to look a little bit more like a girl. So I took some cues from my older sister. I started to grow my hair out. You can see in the next picture, I had a mullet for a period of time, which was not my finest moment. It was the 80s in my defense. So I grow my out. I don't want anybody to know my deep, dark secret, but my desires were not changing. My attractions that started with older women, mother figures, teachers, that initially were not sexual. But as my sexual drives and desires kicked in, my desire for maternal, feminine love that didn't get met the way God designed, despite my mother's best efforts, I rejected her and judged her as emotional and weak. I wanted nothing to do with the world of women, and I didn't know it left a vacuum in my soul for female love that didn't get met the way God had designed. And so that became confused with my normal sex drives and desires that kicked in, and it literally felt like I was born attracted to women and born in a body desiring to be, uh, that really was a man trapped in a female body. And so I decided as these attractions were becoming aimed towards the same sex and towards my peers, I'm playing sports, I'm sharing locker rooms, and I wasn't attracted to every woman, but there was a certain type that, boy, was I drawn to. And I didn't understand what was going on, but I didn't want to act on it because I didn't want anybody to know my deep, dark secret. And so my junior year in high school, I decided, you know, I better come up with a plan to, to cure myself. Maybe I'm not attracted to boys because I've needed, never dated a boy or experimented sexually with them. So maybe I should try that and it will awaken something in me that's dormant. So here I am standing with a boy next to, uh, in my physics class, borrowed a dress from my sister and I'm standing there like a football player next to this guy. Invited him to a dance, doing everything I had to do to dress up and play the part and start experimenting sexually with boys, and they were all too happy to participate, let's be honest. But it didn't awaken anything in me. It only made me more intensely jealous. I wanted to be the man with the woman, not the woman with the man. 
And in fact, when I would dress up and wear those things, I just felt like a man dressed in drag. Like I was wearing a costume. I just had to play the part and do what I had to do. Around the same time, my junior year in high school, I heard the gospel for the first time. And nobody had to tell me that I was a sinner going to hell. I felt sin, condemnation, judgment, shame for all the sexual addictions and things going on behind closed doors. I knew I needed a savior. So that night I received Jesus and I got saved and I believed I would wake up the next morning and all this would go away because if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. And I woke up the next morning equally attracted to women and desiring to be a man and I thought, oh no, now I'm really in a catch-22. Because no one was talking about this in the world and they for sure were not talking about it in the church. So I lived a double life. I went away to college. I had a genuine conversion experience. I got involved in a campus ministry. I really did grow in Jesus, but I had one foot in the kingdom and one foot in my sin. And you can only go so far in that lukewarm state until you either go all out after Jesus or all out after the flesh. And I hit a breaking point where I decided to confess to my campus pastor because I was desperate. I wanted to be free. I didn't think change was possible, but I couldn't bear the guilty conscience anymore. And so when I told my campus pastor, who was this married man in his 40s, I'm 21, single, I've never told anybody on the face of planet Earth my deep, dark secret. I expected him to reject me, to expose my sin, to kick me out of the group. And instead, when I sat with John and I told him my deepest, darkest secret that I had never told another human being on planet Earth, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Linda, thank you for sharing that with me and trusting me with that information. I want you to know this doesn't change our opinion of you. We love you. We see the hand of God on your life. And we want to get you the help that you need. My friends, that was a phenomenal response for 1994. And that was the first step, praise God. That was the first step in what was to be an 11-year journey of transformation. No, I didn't know it would be 11 years. I may not have signed up for the trip, if you know what I'm saying. But suffice it to say, transformation is messy and it takes time. And what God did in my life is he took me through this process where I was uncomfortable in this androgynous female body and I didn't understand. I felt like I was born that way. I didn't understand spirit, soul, and body. I didn't understand progressive sanctification, that God wants to transform us from the inside out and that our sexuality is complicated and the things that go on in our mind, will, and emotions can affect even our sexual drives and desires. It's all connected. I didn't know that there were wounds in my soul and bitterness and rejection and unforgiveness until the Holy Spirit showed us through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that there was layer upon layer in my soul that God wanted to resolve and bring me into who he created me to be. And he brought me through a process of transformation where my appearance changed so drastically that when I went to visit my parents, they didn't even recognize me. But you need to know in that picture, I was still attracted to women and desiring to be a man because transformation is messy and it takes time. I'm 29 years removed from that day that I told my campus pastor and I'm so glad he responded the way he did by demonstrating compassion without compromising the truth of God's word. And it's because of John's response that I'm standing here today. It's because of the body of Christ that came around me in redemptive relationships and inner healing prayer 
moving in the supernatural for the Holy Spirit to show us the layers, the wounds, the things in my heart that God wanted to resolve so that I could stand before you today now content in a female body. And in my mid to late 30s, attractions to men began to emerge, which was awkward and thrilling all at the same time. <laughs> I'm living the dream. I never dreamed this kind of freedom is possible. Don't believe the lies of the enemy that LGBTQ is somehow a separate form of sin that's immune to the gospel and the transforming power of Jesus. It's not. Amen. And God wants to equip us as his ministers to pastor those in our care and to be able to interact with the world through the power of Jesus Christ. And there's some resources I want to share with you today. Today, if you want to check out her resources, she's got some incredible stuff. She's got a website with videos and resources for parents, as well as uh, some of that is going to be part of the uh, course that Pastor Jordan is going to be teaching for Discipleship Nights. And man, just powerful testimony of how the Lord moves, transforms, and renews. Yeah, worship team, you can start to make your way on up. Deuteronomy 22.5 is a scripture that's often used when we talk about this topic in church, right? It says, a woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 23.1, the ESV says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of God. What the Lord is saying is don't distort the image that I gave you, the image that I made you with. And I love the way Linda put it, that transformation is messy and transformation takes time. And even on every other topic, I know at least for me and maybe for you, I've gone to the altars saying, God, change me, to then wake up the next day and say, I don't feel changed. See? All things not honoring and all things that aren't designed by God are really sin. Sin defiles. It destroys. Remember, sin is anything we say or do that goes against the will of God. God isn't saying we won't have temptations, but as we saw in this testimony, part of following God is saying no to my temptations, even when I feel them strongly, and saying yes to him. And if you have or struggle with any of these, God is still saying to turn to him, to wipe that mirror clean and see his reflection in you. Why does any of this matter? Because you have worth to God. You have worth to God. And this brings me to our, our last point. And some might see this as the natural progression of this conversation. Luke 12, 4 through 7 says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Fear meaning respect and reverence. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted, even mine. Don't be afraid, for you are worth more than many sparrows. Whether you are in a valley so low you think there is no other way out but to take your life, or you're on a mountain so high that you find yourself more valuable than Jesus, we come to recognize that Christ values you the same. Your value is high. I want to share some very interesting statistics as we can conclude talking about mental health. And I recognize that is hard, so I'm going to summarize it for you. But I wanted you to see, I didn't make that, and these are real statistics. From 2021 to 2022, there was a 2.6% increase of suicides in the United States alone. For a total of 49,449 individuals in 2022 alone. The majority of suicides in 22 were male at 79.3%. That's about four times higher than female suicides. I don't know about you. I don't know how I'm going to get through some of these statistics. I was with Christine and Pastor Jason not too long ago, and we were hearing them talk about these statistics with just youth, and it was heart-wrenching. But see, there was a decrease in suicides among youth by 8.4% from 21 to 22. And all other age breakdowns saw an increase. And in 2021, 12.3 million adults, this is just in the United States, seriously thought about suicide. 3.5 million adults made a plan. 1.7 million adults attempted. From the CDC, it says adults aged 35 to 65 years account for 46.8% of all suicides in the United States. That's a large majority of this room. And suicide is the eighth leading cause of death for this age group. Youth and young adults between the ages of 10 and 24 account for 15% of all suicides. The suicide rate for this group is 11 per 100,000 people. And it's lower than the other age groups, the highest being 85 plus. However, suicide is the second leading cause of death for those between 10 and 24 years old accounting for 7,126 deaths. Additionally, suicide rates for 10 to 24-year-olds increased 52.2% between 2000 and 2021. In 2021, more than a quarter, 26.3% of high school students identifying as lesbian, gay, or bisexual reported attempting suicide in the prior 12 months. 
This rate was five times higher than the rate reported among heterosexual students at 5.2%. And in 2020, the leading cause of death for individuals age 1 to 44 was unintentional injury. But second was suicide. Do you remember 2020? 2020 claimed more lives than the following in this order. Homicide, heart disease, cancer, COVID, liver disease, diabetes, stroke, and influenza and pneumonia. Yes, we recognize these mental health disorders as we talked about. And I believe that God has equipped many people, even some of you in this room, for how to handle these conversations with those that are truly struggling with a diagnosed mental health disorder. And as I said, I'm not one of those people to qualify on that level. Like I said, I can't help you with even your hypertension. But I believe God works and speaks and heals through his people, through his creation. And there are people all throughout this world that are equipped to guide people into a life fulfilled by Christ, to walk away from mental health disorders before the mental health disorder claims them. But there's also some other elements that happen with suicide. They impact things around us. They impact the world. And it's not just the topics we talked about today. But there's clearly statistics that show there is a need for Jesus in our world. We must recognize as followers of Christ that there is a God who eternally loves us, even when we don't love ourselves enough to think these things. And there is a a level of suicide for those that are not struggling with a mental health disorder, but see there's no other way out. In 1 Samuel 31, we see this with Saul, where he lost in his battle, King Saul. And he said, it's better for me to die than to be captured by my enemy. And fell on his sword. And then those that followed him did the same. They followed his example. It's important to recognize that if you have thoughts of suicide, get help. There are people out there that God has gifted and God has ordained to walk you through this and guide you through this. God has given you friends and family and support, whether you believe it or not. I will tell you this as a pastor, I'd much rather you call me at two in the morning and I meet you and we get a burger than to read your name that next morning on Facebook. Call 911, call a friend, call a hotline because you're worth, I can't even communicate your worth to the Lord. Your life is worth so much. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. 
Have you ever felt so worthless? That when you read a scripture like this, you say, that's not me. But Jesus is saying, yes, yes, that's you. Chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are we doing as followers of Christ to help those who are struggling with mental health? Statistically, one in five struggle with their mental health, which means about 40 people in this room right now are struggling with what we're talking about today. One in four American adults suffers with a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. And one in 10 will suffer from a depressive illness such as major depression or bipolar disorder. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that I've got all the answers, but I serve a God who does. And like Linda said in that testimony, it's not always instant. And that transformation is messy. And that transformation takes time. I believe in those that God has equipped and skilled to have these conversations to guide and create sources for health and healing, like medicines. However, I also believe in a God that heals mental illnesses the same way he heals a physical illness. I believe God's healing comes and looks in so many ways. To find freedom in him. To find wholeness in him. And I know I mentioned the mountaintops too, where sometimes we just feel like I'm worth more than God. We can land in that realm full of pride. Yes, our worth is high, but it's not because of what we have. It's because I'm a child of God. Jesus talks about that in Mark 10 with the ruler, if you want to continue to read on that. Because what I have does not make me worthy. What I don't have does not make me worthy. What I struggle with doesn't make me worthy. What I don't struggle with doesn't make me worthy. Being you. This is who God made you to be. made you, you, in perfection, in wholeness, in beauty. Church, Jesus loves you more than you may ever, ever realize, and he wants to see you walk in freedoms that you may have never felt you'd walk in again. So as we conclude before we spend some time with the Lord, and don't worry, our kids' ministry team was made aware well before this morning that we're going to spend some extra time in his presence. Your kids are taken care of because they're loved by an incredible team of volunteers. 
Speak God's truth to yourself. Recognize your worth to yourself. Recognize your worth to God. So that we may not give in to temptations, but instead, as Romans 6, 11 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Not being bound by our old self. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And we heard about that in the testimony, where sometimes it takes a while for us to recognize that. Because transformation is messy, and transformation takes time. But Jesus' love is instant, and it is eternal, and his healing knows no bounds. But God. So if I pull up Ephesians 2 that we talked about earlier, I don't think I have it in our slides. But it says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. You are worthy. You are loved. You are cared about. You're who God has called you to be, designed you to be, made you to be. Now, some of you in this room might be in this first camp. If we could dim the lights a little bit. You might be in this first camp of saying, Pastor Dave, you have no idea how much I'm struggling with what you talked about today. But God does. God does. We're going to have time for you to seek him out. However, you might not be in that camp too. You might be somebody who knows another. Maybe it's a child, a parent, a grandchild, a friend. You might be somebody that has somebody in your life that is struggling with these When was the last time we interceded for them in prayer? When was the last time we sought God out saying, God, please move in their life? Third, you might be battling or dealing with something else that's going on in our lives that I might have not touched on directly today, but still saying, Pastor Dave, I need that freedom in Christ. But then last, this is for everybody. Sometimes we need to just seek him. When our heart breaks for the world around us, as Will talked about last week, when we hear these statistics of suicide and depression throughout our nation, I don't know how, as a follower of Christ, my heart can't be broken for our nation. So I'm going to invite you all to stand. And Will and the worship team are going to to lead us 
into his presence. But I'm going to ask some of our prayer team, if you can make your way off to the sides, kind of up towards the front. If you need a touch from the Lord this morning, whether it's something we talked about or not, whether it's something different or the same, there's no assumptions when you come up before the Lord. There's only celebrations. Because we're growing our relationship with him. If you need freedoms, if you need healings, seek the Lord out this morning from your seat. These altars are open. If you were here for our fire at the altar conference, you know what I mean by just coming up front and laying it before the Lord. But let's turn our attention to him as we grow and we celebrate him, the freedoms that not just happen today, but happen in our conversations as we leave.